There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 223. And today in the show, we're joined again by Dan Infault to take a deeper than ever look into his hunting beast style strategies and philosophies for public land and heavily pressured whitetail bucks. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today on the show we have Dan Infault back with us on the podcast for the first time since 2014. And if you're not familiar with Dan, I hope this helps change that because Dan is one of the, I think it's fair to say he's one of the most revered and respected serious DIY deer hunters out there. And he's become well known because of this forum he started called The Hunting Beast. And then many different DVDs, books, and other resources that he's put out over over past years to help people learn about his aggressive and mobile style of deer hunting that seems to work particularly well for people that are hunting public land or heavily pressured private lands. And, you know, Dan was actually one of our very first guests on the show. I think he was on our very third episode. Definitely one of our most popular guests. So I knew that we had to get him back on eventually, but over the course of this four-year period since then, you know, Dan's been featured in a lot of different outlets, websites, YouTube channels, podcasts, let alone his own website and all the different things that he's doing there. So my thing was that if if we're going to have Dan back on again, we just had to find a way to make sure it wasn't, you know, just another rehash of what's already been done on all these other podcasts and shows out there that have popped up since we first started doing this. So here's my idea to get a next level conversation with Dan. I decided to bring on a couple guest co-hosts who could dive deeper with Dan than even I could. These two guys have studied under Dan for years and years. They've been longtime members of his Hunting Beast Forum. They understand Dan's hunting philosophies probably better than most anyone else. They've tested his ideas for themselves in the field. And they're now some of the very most successful DIY deer hunters out there themselves too. I wanted these guys to ask the questions to Dan that they've always wanted answered. So... Here to do that with me are two of my good buddies and past guests on the podcast as well, 
Andy May, and Joe Elsinger. And that's the game plan. Joe, Andy, and myself are going to ask all sorts of questions of Dan in an attempt to, uh, you know, I think in an attempt to explore ideas and, and maybe lessons learned and, and tactics that Dan hasn't shared as much about in the past. So the format does end up being a little bit more like a Q&A and not as much of a cohesive examination of a single topic like we sometimes do. So kind of all over the place. But I think you'll find that we covered some really interesting things that should help a lot of you out. And I should note, you know, if you haven't heard our first two episodes with Dan, you probably should go back and listen to those first so you kind of have the, the proper foundation to understand what we cover today because we don't cover a lot of the basic elements of Dan's hunting tactics or his, his kind of style of hunting. We don't cover much of that. So you'll want to listen to those first episodes to get that background necessary and then come back to this one to kind of cover that, that next level stuff. I think even even if you did listen to those first couple episodes way back in 2014, you might even still want to review them now just so it's fresh in your mind. So with that being the case, I do think you're all going to come away from this one with a lot of great new ideas. I'm excited for you to listen to it. I'm excited to listen to it again myself and try to think through some of these things and how they might be applied to my own hunting season. So that's what we have in store for you today. But before we get to the main event, we do need to pause briefly to thank our partners at Onyx for the support of this podcast. And you know, Onyx is the maker of the Onyx Hunt app, which is, at least from what I've seen, the most useful digital mapping app out there for hunters. And it includes all of your typical GPS app type features. It has all sorts of different types of layers that are useful to a deer hunter, like satellite imagery, topo lines, property borders, public land information. But what I found particularly useful with the app just recently is that it also includes some information that can help you out if you are hiking or camping. You know, I've been out here in Montana for the last couple of weeks, and I've actually been using my Onyx app to show me where national forest borders are, which helps me determine where I can pull off and camp for free. And the app also shows many different hiking trails and trailheads and even designated campgrounds. So this has been really helpful for me as we've been driving out in the middle of nowhere, Montana, and trying to figure out where we're going to stay at night, where we're going to head to, what types of places we want to stay at. It, it's been very handy for that. And of course, I think this would be very useful for anyone planning a backcountry elk or mule deer hunt too. So as always, I'm finding Onyx to be a great tool. And if you'd like to learn more about it yourself, you can visit onyxmaps.com or search for Onyx. That's O-N-X on your phone's app store. And now let's get to the show with Joe, Andy, and Dan. All right, I've now have with me three more folks. I've got as my co-hosts joining me today, Joe Elsinger and Andy May. And joining us as our actual guest, though, is Dan Infall. So welcome back to the show, Dan. It's been a little while. Yeah, it's been a while. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think it was way back in 2014 when we actually were able to do this last. So that's kind of time flies. I can't believe it's been that long. But we had you on twice, and those are great episodes. Um, but since then, I think a lot has changed. Most notably, at least from your end, I think, you know, I think more and more people have found out about what you're doing in your style of hunting, whether it be just from engaging with your own website and your forum and your podcasts and videos, or from the other appearances you've made on Gosh, the the two thousand other podcasts that have popped up now across the world. So you've been you've been kind of sharing your your methodology all over the place. A lot of people are interested and excited about it. So so when I got to thinking, I was like, I want to have Dan back on the show. But how do we do something that's different? How do we do something that's kind of next level? And um, the idea I had 
was to bring Joe and Andy on as co-hosts because I think it's fair to say, um, and you guys jump in if you if you want to correct me here, but I think I would look at them as kind of protégés of yours in that they've, they've been following what you've been doing on The Hunting Beast. They've been longtime members of your forum and some of the very most successful guys on there. And now they've kind of gone out and they've been able to develop their own styles and they've they've been sharing that with the world too. So I think they've got an interesting perspective as they've learned a ton from you, but then grown in their own way. Um, so my hope here is that in addition to my own curiosities, I think these two guys are going to have a lot of questions for you that are going to be maybe even more in-depth or more interesting than anything I have since they're you know, head and shoulders above me even when it comes to understanding what you do and or how to apply that kind of stuff out there um, in the field. So that's kind of my, my idea for this, this chat. And I guess to start, though, Dan, if you're, if you're up for this, most people know what you're up to, but if there's someone new listening right now, if we just want to establish like a little bit of a, of a foundation even, if someone came up to you and was just like, you know, Dan, what is beast-style hunting? You know, a lot of people call it this now. They call it beast-style hunting. If you had to give them like a Cliff Notes answer to explain like your general style of hunting, how would you how would you do that, Dan? Um, probably I would say it's a uh, it's a style of uh, getting really close to buck bedding and really understanding buck bedding and uh, getting to where the deer move in daylight. And uh, so so then, if that's the case, if it's bedding focused, how is your hunting style different now? than it was when we talked back then have 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 you evolved at all or has your style changed at all in the last three four years uh not much um i have been evolving my whole life so i think that uh last few years is, uh, have been pretty flat line as far as development and real quick I, I have a quick question on that how about your focus as a hunter because i feel like i i think i know might know what you're where you're going there but um i feel like your focus maybe has changed and if you yeah that that is correct um joe makes a good point there uh um i think my focus is uh has <laughs> really changed and, and uh i'm not as aggressive as a hunter and i don't care as much anymore if i'm successful and i worry more about others than i do myself i think when i was younger that drive and stuff is what put a lot of those giant bucks on my wall and uh, you know with age you lose a little bit of that drive uh, and I kill a lot more bucks now out of knowledge. Well, when I was younger, I think I killed a lot of them out of just sheer determination. What about this, Dan? When it comes to those, that's that sheer determination, everything, have you seen the outside world change at all and force you to change? And, and I guess something I feel like has been happening is with the, the the word out about how you hunt and other public land and, and kind of heavily pressured area hunters out there, there's a lot of people talking about this kind of stuff now. I feel like more and more guys are getting the confidence to go and hunt public places and go in these tough-to-hunt places and dive in there and do this kind of stuff. Have you seen, like, increased pressure? Like, are there more people trying to do the same things that you've been doing, and is that making things more difficult for you? Yeah, it's it's really a, uh, been a huge change the last couple of years. It's really starting to grow rapidly. And uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, um, I'm seeing guys that, uh, you know, used to say you never go in your bedding, changing their whole tune now. And uh, a lot of mainstream guys adapting the same philosophies. Um, so I think it is uh, growing um, really big. Um, it, it gets kind of hard for me because uh, um, I like to talk, you know, like more like with the Joes and Andys out there who are really hardcore and, uh, 
and uh, I can relate with, and, and but I got a lot of new new people coming to me all the time asking the same questions over and over and over again. <laughs> yeah. How do you find your buck bad, Dan? <laughs> we all start there you know that's the thing and, I, and one of the one of many things i admire about you dan and i for the record you've taught me you know and the beast in general has taught me more about hunting than any other one entity in my entire lifetime um you know you're willing to answer those questions again and again because we all start there and yeah we you know it's like a you know, answering a three-year-old when it comes to how to, you know, put on their clothes in the morning, but we all start there, and it, you remember that. It's really easy to become, you know, almost arrogant. There's examples out there, you know, people just ignoring others, um, and you're always willing to teach. So, I don't know. One question I had for you regarding that, where, do you, where does that come from, I guess? You know, I um, where does that desire to, you know, continue, help others out, even even to your detriment, you know, we've talked about that, where, you know, you know, you're getting more pressure in areas that you hunt. I know I'm feeling it, too, um, targeting, yeah. mm-hmm. but we still do it, you know, because it's in the big picture, it's a good thing, I guess, you know. Um, you know, when I was younger, I think I worried more about that stuff, and, you know, it, it is making an impact on me. I had a... Um, Two seasons ago, I had a really large non-typical I was hunting, and some people that uh, follow me uh, figured out my where I was hunting that deer and really moved in and took over, and they ended up killing it. And uh, <laughs> you know, that stuff happens, but I don't really mind that much anymore. Um, but what I really like to do is is I hate the direction that, uh, that the hunting industry is going, and it's almost going to like a you got to have certain products and you have to be uh, – like a deer farmer type guy and and 90 percent of the, the people out there don't have the money or the uh the ability to get on really good private land and hunt the way all these other people are hunting and they're just kind of lost souls and i think what i'd like to see is the woodsmanship i saw when i was young that the old hunters had come back and uh it's almost a lost art and uh i think kind of, you know, when you're talking about beast style, I think a lot of that is woodsmanship, learning what deer do, how they behave and stuff, rather than just, uh, you know, planting a food plot or putting on a pile of food. Not that there's anything wrong with that, just I'd like to see people, you know, at least adapt and understand the skills of the woods like they used to. Yeah. Hey, Dan, uh, this is Andy. It, that kind of sparks a, a question that I had uh, kind of piggyback off that, but do you think that kind of that focus on big buck or the big buck craze that just kind of seems to be compounding itself uh, and getting you know such an emphasis on that do you do you feel like that's kind of ruining hunting in a way in your opinion uh, to some degree but I, I you know i think that's what drives a lot of people to get out there as long as they don't let it consume them i, I think it's good you know it, it did kind mm-hmm. of consume me when i was younger um but i think uh you know, I don't see it as bad in, in a lot of this new generation. I think I think people do have it tamed down a bit more than in the older days. Mm-hmm. Come come down a little little bit from you know ten twenty years ago. It seemed to peak, and you know that's all everybody thought about. That's interesting. Right. I have seen like uh, a little more, especially kind of. It seems like you know with um, you know some of the public land issues and you know the threats on public land. There there has been a, a slight switch to uh 
you know, just more about the, the journey and more about the hunt and more about the experience. Um, you know, I have, I have seen that focus and that emphasis a little, I actually really like, so that's kind of, that's good. You know, some of the things Dan said kind of making me think about some of these other questions that I've kind of always wanted to ask him. And this is one that you actually answered on a, a recent podcast, but maybe you could even uh, take it a little bit further, but, um, you know, you've been pretty open about, you know, when you were younger and you had young kids that, you know, your, your commitment to hunting was on such a high level that you even missed some, you know, important things that involved your family. And, you know, I can tell, you know, by bringing that up, you, you have some regret there. Um, but at the same time, you know, you mentioned that you wouldn't really change much, but what would you, what would you give for advice to like kind of aspiring young hunters that do have families, like young families at home, as far as like a time commitment. Um, and then in addition to that, um, you know, what would you, if, if they kind of wanted to find that balance, how do you, or what would you tell them if, if they wanted to kind of maximize their success on mature deer? I, I think what I see is a, a lot of the people that have a problem making that balance really, uh, put deer over everything and uh what they got to realize is that um if you shoot you know even you andy i, I don't remember what you shot last year but i really look up to you do you remember what i shot <laughs> you know i don't think anybody no. really cares what any of us shot really no. so if you put another buck in the wall or you don't i don't think it's a big deal and to uh sacrifice your family and your kids and birthdays and that kind of thing um like you said i took it to the extreme and uh, I regret a little bit of it, but yeah, that's who made me who I am, you know. But uh, I think I would I would tell those kids that uh, it really doesn't matter if they put a buck in the wall or not, you know. That to, to put their ethics and morals and stuff first, and uh, be able to look at the deer that they get that they earn, you know, um, with respect and respect and pride. I'm curious, Andy, Andy and Joe, to you guys over there. What about you? How? How do you guys look at balancing hunting and family obligations and stuff like that? Andy, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I know you've got you have a family yourself. How how's that been for you? And then Joe, I'd be curious for you to jump in after that. Yeah, um, I think I was um, a lot like Dan before I had kids. I was I don't know if I'd say lucky, uh, but my situation I I ended up having kids a little bit later than say most of my friends um you know I was 32 years old when I had my first um a 31 so you know literally from I started I started hunting late in my life too so it was right around 17 but from 17 to 31 um that's all I did you know I literally scouted five or six days a week um completely obsessed with it and hunted you know, as often as possible, nearly every day of the season. Um, and then once the, once the child came, um, I toned it back, um, substantially, but you know, it was that, it was those early years. I've mentioned that before that kind of time commitment, um, that really kind of set the foundation of, of my learning. I'd like to think that I'm still evolving and I, I feel like I am, but just probably at a slower pace than, what I was at that time. Cause I just, I literally, that's what I, that's just what I did. I, I literally stopped every other hobby and passion of mine. And it was just hyper-focused on big deer and hunting. Um, 
but then you know toned it back and, and now I just try to try to keep a balance I don't want to miss anything with the the kids and um you know I, I just wouldn't really feel right about that and I don't know I I looked at when Dan kind of opened up about that it, I, I remember seeing a thread about it a few years ago and I just thought it, those were really wise words you know that you know, you don't let it consume you. And there's, there's other things that are more important and there's, nobody's really going to care what you, you killed at the end of the day, you know, or at the end of your life, no one's going to care what your wall looks like or how many big bucks you have on it. So I try to keep that in perspective now and just really focus on that, that family time. But when it's time to scout and time to hunt, it's, you know, it's a hundred percent commitment during that time frame. Yeah. I'm, I, I had a similar journey, you know, other than I, you know, grew up hunting, and uh, I spent 110% of my time um, up, you know, uh, hunting all through my teens and uh, early 20s, and it just slowly, how much time I've been able to spend has slowly with each phase of my life, and kids being kind of the most recent phase, because I had kids late too, like Andy, I, I have got a three-year-old and a five-year-old right now, so not that long ago, maybe in the 30s, so... Um, yeah, they, you know, school and then having a career and, you know, now I've got a managerial position at work and every, everything just knocks a few more hours off it, um, which is unfortunate and, uh, you know, yeah, the fire still burns, that's for sure, for getting out there, but it's not, you know, it's, it's a matter of priorities and life's what you make of it, you only get one life, so that's, that's how I look at it and that, I agree, like, the only people that really care what they shoot are, you know, is the face in the mirror. A lot of times I think other people, you know, a lot of people build it up way too much. Um, and there's, you know, people out there in the industry that I, I think is kind of unfortunate, you know, it's all or nothing. And it seems like, you know, there's no mention of family or if they were married, you know, it fell apart because they put that ahead of everything else. And I think that's really unfortunate. Yeah, my, my son right now, you know, he's asking to take him deer hunting this fall, and I'm going to, you know, that, that's, that's, and am I going to shoot a big buck doing it? Nope. Am I, you know, hopefully we see a deer, uh, and, uh, but I, I wouldn't have it any other way. When you have somebody, you know, a kid asking you that, that's just, you know, magical. Yeah. I know this, this whole idea, like, you know, taking better advantage of the, of the, time that you do have and being a little more efficient with it i know that's something you've talked about andy because not only do you have like the family obligations but also your job doesn't let you get away for really big long stretches of time um so so to you dan then for someone who's in a situation kind of like this where they're trying to balance family and work and hunting and they're just trying to become a more efficient hunter and use the time they do have more effectively you know what what kind of things would you offer now as you've been able to kind of go through that transition yourself to, to becoming more efficient with that time yeah, it's hard if you don't if you don't hunt a lot. You know, I hear from a lot of guys who hunt um, weekends, and so much changes in the woods, and uh, the patterns change so much in a week that it's hard to keep up if you're not out there a lot. Um, I, I still hunt, uh, you know, four or five times a week, but to me, that's a lot less than I used to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you know, uh, I think one of the big things is to not overlook the, the properties near your house. Uh, I kill a lot of big bucks on property that's really overpressured that's convenient because uh, i don't have two hours to go run to the great property but i got you know 
30 minutes after work to run down the street and hunt the, the public swamp where everybody else is hunting. So, you know, just learning that property and getting out and getting chances because I have more time to hunt that, I kill a lot of bucks in, in hard situations just because I'm out there, you know, and, and I push it. So I think, uh, you know, uh, to find stuff near your home, near your work, like where you can get out of work and go straight out hunting on a day that maybe your family's off doing something or whatever, you can get out more that way uh, on days you normally wouldn't. I think that helps a lot. Yeah. Andy, mm-hmm. Andy, would you add anything since I mentioned that you're kind of in that spot a little bit too? Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's exactly what I do, Dan. I've got some stuff close to home and work that it certainly isn't what I would consider good quality, but I know it intimately. And, um, you know, when a big buck shows up, which isn't all that often, but, uh, you know, when they do, they you know, usually have a pretty good idea on how to hunt them and a good chance of getting them. But, um, other than that, I would just say, uh, you know, just really, you know, when you, when you kind of settle in on some areas, um, if you can't put a lot of time in hunting, make sure you put in as much time as possible scouting. Um, I, and I know Dan believes in this too, but, uh, you know, I scout way more than the actual hunts that I get. So I try to intimately learn the areas, um, to the point where I just, they're almost, they almost feel like home to me. You know, if there's, um, you know, there's, I, I know every bedding area and I know every water source, and, um, every fruit bearing tree and, you know, just kind of all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, build on that with hunting experiences and keep notes, um, you know, t- uh, you know, tendencies and times of year when things seem to be better and just kind of accumulate all that and that you can really kind of increase your efficiency with, uh, you know, with that knowledge. You bring up a really good point because uh, knowing that uh, knowing the area intimately is really important because if you don't scout in the wintertime, if you don't take that time and get out there and really learn that property and you're going out there trying to figure it out, I mean, good luck when you're hunting 10 days a year or 20 days a year. You're going to, you're going to struggle. Um, like Andy says, I mean, I go into a 3,000-acre property behind my, my house here. I know where every bedding area is. So if one's there, I know where he's going to be. So all I have to do is find sign of a buck and go, okay, he's in one of these, you know, three or four bedding areas, and then hunt him down. Um, but if you can, if you, because your time's limited, don't scout in spring and don't scout during the season, you're in for a long, hard uh, hunt. And I think a lot of guys think they find a bedding area or something, too, and then they bank on it. You know, you see a lot of these new guys get really excited when they find a good bedding area. And I think Andy and Joe can probably relate to this. You find some of these bedding areas, and they look so tore up, you think, oh, this is golden. Well, I can tell you from experience, I've hunted like 20 of those last year, and I ended up coming out of it without a buck last year. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. On the question of time, I wanted to ask you this. Um, say somebody is really limited for time. They get two weeks of vacation to spend hunting. How would you split it between scouting and hunting? Like, you got two weeks, um, you know? That's a good question. I mean, uh, I would definitely want to get some spring scouting in, but you'd think you could get some of that done on the weekends. Um, but if that's all I had was two weeks period for the whole year, I think 50% of it would go into scouting. Yeah. But, you know, I go, I go on trips a lot and go to new areas, and, and I always like 
hunting spots I've never been in. I, I think it's kind of exciting to go in and learn something and figure it out. And when I go to those new properties, I usually don't hunt mornings, and I scout my whole day. And then I'm hunting in a spot that I scouted that day, whatever was best. And that way I'm not, you know, I don't wait till deer walk through and smells I've been there. But I'm going to the outskirts of what looks like bedding to me. That's been real good to me, going in and hunting in that manner of scout hunting, you know. Can, can you elaborate on what that actually looks like then during that, that new property process? What's the actual scouting process during that period when you're actually going to go hunt that day? Well, I'm trying to figure out what I think is bedding. I mean, a little bit's going to be looking at maps, um, you know, aerials, uh, if it's swamp or flat ground, and, you know, uh, topos if it's uh, hilly or both. And uh, then I'm going to go out and actually look and see what's got the cover that'll hold deer and, and such. And then I'm not going to go to where I think the bedding is, but I'm going to go to where, I, you know, I'm going to kind of circle it to see if there's good sign coming in and out and then try to get as close following that sign as I can and uh, set up on it. Yeah. I, I saw I saw a video that you and Mario did where you guys were reviewing your 2017 season, and you talked about this kind of grid-style approach to hunting a new property where you broke the property down into sections and then worked your way through them. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, that, that particular style of hunting originated uh, way back uh, when I was hunting a property, and there was a, a really nice buck on that property for that time frame. And I was hunting all the key spots that it always produced and never seen this buck, but he's showing up on cameras and, the, you know, in the field in the areas or, or at uh, mass trees um, right after dark. So I knew he was in there, but I couldn't figure out where he was. And I knew if I wasn't seeing him, I wasn't seeing him in daylight. And I took that property and I, and I, I broke it down into like 10 acre squares. And I just, I was going to hunt every square until I, I got through the property. And I got towards the end, and I and one of the spots that was up to hunt was just an open wood lot. And I thought, what are the odds? But I'm going to give it a shot. And I went in there, and that buck got up from behind some brush on a transition and came to me, and I shot it just out of the blue. I didn't know he was there or anything else. And I went over there. There was just a beet bed there that I would never found because I would never thought he bedded there. So then I started to figure out that, you know, sometimes you just can't see it. And if you break that property down and grid it like that and go in and force yourself to hunt a new section each time, um, you can find those bucks that are on that property pretty quick. Do, do you Instead think of waiting for that, that buck to come to you, you're going to him. And then by doing a 10-acre uh, area and hunting in the best spot, even if he's not in the best spot, you're probably going to see or hear or sense him if you're in that area and he's in it. Yeah. So, so when is that kind of approach better than the approach that you mentioned before, where you scout during the day for a specific sign, looking for a certain thing you saw on a map, and then hunted that? Or do those two things go hand in hand sometimes? Well, they, they kind of go hand in hand, but, uh, you know, I, I think my first approach is to go in there and scout those transitions, find the sign, hunt them down, like, like I said earlier. But sometimes I struggle with a certain buck. I'm after a certain animal, and I can't get them through those traditional means, um, traditional to me anyways. And that's when I and I decide, well, I'm going and I'm finding them. Um, okay. You know, and just hunting them down, basically. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right, Andy, what, what else is on your mind? Dan, uh, I wanted to touch on 
some more uh, some more betting stuff. Um, you know, you've talked a lot about um, like any wind beds. You know, beds that are used in type of, any type of wind direction, and then wind based beds. Can you kind of explain um, like the differences um, that you see uh, in regards to like terrain or examples of where you might find each, or where they where they might be the most common and how you, or what, which ones do you think are the most effective to target? Uh, I don't, I don't know about one being more effective than the other to, to target, but, um, the any wind beds are usually the easiest to hunt because you can get the closest cause it's, um, they're usually not site based. Um, but you can tell the difference between these beds. I think this is a good topic cause we haven't really talked about this a lot in like podcasts or anything, but when you look at a, uh, a buck bed it's different than a doe bed because the does like bed in that circle that open area a buck puts his mm-hmm. puts himself you know in cover and he's worried about himself so when you look at that bed you're thinking you, you know um this animal is is here so that you can't get near him instead of working as that group and if you got a buck who puts his back up against something and he's got an open view the other way i guarantee you that wind's coming from the obstacle and he's looking downwind into the open. So you can see those um, uh, wind-based bedding by looking for the opening. You know, if you look in uh, uh, hill country, is really um, the big one for, for that wind-based. And if you look at those beds, you can, you can see how they put themselves up against a tree or behind a tree, and they look down the hill you know, with that wind to the back. Um, you see the same thing in, in, you know, like in farm country, they'll get up on the edge of a field in bed, you know, just 10, 20 feet into the cover, but where they can kind of see out into the field or see down a lane into that field, uh, they'll have that wind to their back. So they're on those, uh, those tree lines looking at the field with the wind to the back and, you know, just a guy that hunts farm, if he, if he knows that much, he doesn't have to hunt the way that we hunt. But if you know those bucks are going to bed on the side that's got the wind coming out of the woods, he knows not to walk into their to their eyesight. You know what I mean? Yeah. On the topic of terrain, do you see any wind beds uh, that you know the beds with any wind used uh, more common? You kind of touched on this, but do you see them more common in certain terrains like swamps? Yeah, swamps and marshes uh, uh, have more. You know. The wind-based and non-wind-based beds are in every terrain, but the majority of uh, non-wind beds that are good for big bucks are in marshes and swamps, where the majority of wind-based beds are in hill country or farm country on edges. How about uh, when you find beds down low in hill country? Do you find those to be more often with any wind beds, or do you find them to be more commonly... I know usually well, it, it depends on the cover. If they're in heavy grass, heavy brush, um, and they don't have a good view, then they're usually any wind. If they're bedding on an edge, looking towards old, with thick to the back or something to the back, then they're then they're wind based. And you have to go out there and just look at it. I mean, I, those, those low areas, you know, it's all how to set up. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's something I just wondered uh, that when occasionally I run into deer bedded down low in the hills, if it's um, less likely to be associated with wind or not. Just, it's a big one in uh, in big woods too. You got uh, where you have those old clear cuts that grow thick. Those big bucks are usually on the downwind edge to the open woods, and they'll look into the open woods from the edge of that. 
where guys think that they're in the, the middle of that thick area. They're usually not. So you're saying that they're, they've got the wind blowing from the thick behind their back, and they're watching the open woods in front of them, right? Right. And if something steps into that open woods, they just slide into the thick. And if they smell something or hear something in that thick coming at them, they go out. And then they also, like on that uh, at big woods, if there's a terrain feature along that edge, and it's not just a straight line, like just one spot where they got a little point of the thick stuff going out, they'll get out on that point so they can see all the way around the point and smell from behind. Just like in hill country, only it's flat. Yeah, yeah. So so speaking of these different types of bedding areas, right, We in past episodes we've done with you and then on your past DVDs, you've had the, the hill country DVDs talking a lot about the different types of bedding situations there. You've got the marsh and swamp bedding areas that we've talked about a lot in the past. But you've got a new DVD coming out about farmland hunting. Um, can you talk specifically about that? What types of things, and you, you alluded to a few things already, but is there anything else when it comes to hunting farmland as far as how you think about their bedding, how you hunt to that, related to that bedding in the specific farm situations? Uh, sure, and uh, I'll give you my take, and I'd like to hear Andy's on it, because I, I know Andy's got a little experience there. Um, and Joe, Joe comes from farm farm area too. Um, but uh, one of the big things I think people misunderstand about farm country is I've learned a lot of it and it's pretty rare I find that big buck in the big wood lot in the middle of the farm. The big bucks usually are on the tree lines on the little brush off to the side. They're out in more of the open areas in a thick spot that's being overlooked. It's not too often I see them in that big block. If I do see them in that big block, it's that downwind side on the downwind end of that block. Is that what you see, uh, Andy Joe? Yeah, I do see yeah. that quite a bit. Um, it's like where I hunt uh, in Michigan. I'd say it's a pretty good mix of uh, timber and farmland. We we do got quite a bit of cover, and there's, you know, you got your marshes and your swamp stuff. But when I where I mm. hunt in uh, northern Ohio, is like ninety nine percent crop fields with little tiny woodlots, and they bed uh, exactly how Dan says. Um, you know, usually. If they if they are in some um, a woodlot, they'll they'll bed right on the edge, kind of facing the open ground. Um, and for a lot of years, um, I would get busted because that's you kind of put the wind in your face and you kind of try to sneak into this little woodlot, you know, that you think are are holding all these deer. And they're, you know, the what I would find after scouting is there'd be beds right just inside the woodlot, you know, before right on the edge of where it kind of you start to get some. Um, some understory um, facing the field that I was actually accessing from. And then I also find them in like the edges of hedgerows, like right, like right at the tip or like the, the little drainage, um, you know, the little drainage ditches that, you know, hold a little bit of water. There'll be like little curves or little angles in those, and there'll be beds there where, you know, maybe the, um, the combine can't quite hit, you know, right on the edge. No. So you get these little pockets of cover. And, what's that? Doesn't need to be trees. They don't need to be trees either. I just thought I mentioned that. No, you know, no, not at, right? not at all. Not at all. Right, but you watch yeah. all the hunters go straight woodlots. You know, another thing I've noticed on those farms too is when they have one access, and those hunters always park in the same spot. I mean, the biggest stuff I find is usually set up to watch that access. How long do you think that takes for? Local bucks to kind of figure that out and start adjusting their bedding to watch that. Is that something that can happen like right now? Uh, I I don't know how long it takes. Um, 
most of the time when I run into it, it's, it's, it's already been a uh, prolonged thing. You know, um, I can't think of any place where I'm the one who started hunting there first on a farm. Most of the farms I've been on are shared access. Yeah. But uh, I go scout properties a lot for people, and uh, that's one thing I look for right away is those bucks that are in that little forgotten spot watching their access. And that's usually where I find the biggest thumb. Joe, you didn't get to share your thoughts on, on your farm country betting observations. What, what would you say there, Joe? Yeah, I agree entirely with that. I hunt everything from like 10 or 20% cover up to Iowa. So, um, you know, in the areas where cover is limited, for one, there's a huge change when the crops come out. I would point out that. and Everybody kind of knows that. But you, you go from 100% cover down to 10%, you know. Um, when the corn's picked, uh, but still those small areas, you know, if the grass is 20, you know, 18, 24 inches tall, you might find a deer bedded in there. You might find a big buck bedded in there, you know, and especially the higher the pressure is, the less likely they are going to bed anywhere there's trees, you know, those little, you'll find them bedded on grass terraces and in, you know, drainage swales if the grass is a little, you know, tall enough, clump of weeds or whatever. Um, on the ends of little fingers of timber, far more likely than the larger woodlots, I agree. So, and on, another question for Dan, um, how do you see uh, frequency of using beds changed in farm country? Do you see, uh, for, you know, my observation is there seems to be more satellite beds, less, you know, heavily used primary beds. Bucks might be a little more nomadic. I'm not saying they don't have core areas and core bedding areas. They definitely do. But I'm just curious what your observation has been. I, I see a lot of core bedding areas just like I do in other trains. Um, it's a little more nomadic, like you said. But what I see is they don't wear those beds in because they shift around a lot. Uh, I think they, they shift around a lot on, based on the exact wind. Um, for example, uh, there's a little farm down the street that I hunt over here. Uh, my buddy Dave owns it gets heavy pressure all the way around it. But there's one spot where 90% of the bucks that we've killed there come out of. It's obviously the primary bedding, and uh, no matter what time of the year when we see bucks, that's generally where they come out of 90% of the time. And you go in here, and for somebody who doesn't have an eye for it, you'd have a hard time seeing those beds. And the area's probably in two acres in size, and it's a low-density area. But you'd have a hard time noticing those beds. I mean, you go in there in the snow, you find them because you see exactly where they laid. But I think they're moving a lot based on, you know, the thermal and the wind and stuff. I don't think they're in the same bed all day. You know, where if you get into um, steep hill country, you find those worn beds and you think you got it made when it might not be used any more than the ones in farm countries, just that he's laying in that exact same spot because of the, the wind and thermal meet at that spot all day long. So he's not shifting around. Um, yeah. So it, I think a lot of times it just looks like it's not being used as much, but I do see in farm country, it's a lot harder to see the bedding areas or in any flat ground for that matter, unless it's like swamp or cattails, then you can see it better. But any flat ground like, like big woods or, or farm country, it's really hard to find those worn in beds. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting to say that because I hunted a farm once, I don't hunt it anymore, but for a number of years, it was like a 200-acre farm, maybe 15 acres of cover total, and 99% of the bucks that I, all, all the bucks that I saw, at least three years of old age, they came out 
out of the top of a skinny draw that was, there was an old farm pond there. The dam had washed out, so it didn't retain water anymore, and it grew up in brush. Well, those deer bedded on the, you know, on the old banks of that pond, depending on the wind direction, and it was only, you know, maybe an acre in size. And every stinking buck, decent buck that I saw in that 200 acres came out of that location. It was, it was amazing. So, and you couldn't mm-hmm. even find beds there. There was a bunch of real light use beds, but you add up all those real light beds, and there was a lot of use. So. Is there is there anything specific, Dan, that you or that that helps you or someone? If someone's listening who doesn't have the eye for it, when they're looking for these beds in the farm country that it's not quite as obvious as there might be in hill country, is there anything they can be looking for to help find those hard-to-find spots? Yeah, the, the biggest thing in, in hill country, and it's hard to get this through to guys that don't have a lot of hunting time, but it's observation. Um, I don't hunt as much as I observe and farm. I'll sit back and watch. And the deer get more used to coming out earlier and you see what's going on, and you're not damaging the property by jumping in there and spooking everything out. You see what's going on. So, you know, you're watching an area expecting a buck to come out, and all of a sudden you see him come out somewhere else, and now you're like, oh, if I would have went in there, I'd have spooked him. But in farm country, I think a lot of it's observing, and it's, uh, you know, watching from a distance and then moving in when it's the right time. And that's hard, too, because I think, uh, you, you know, when I actually see a buck make a move and I make a move on him, I think it's a one in four chance I get an opportunity at him by moving in the next day. But one in four odds ain't bad. Yeah, that's that's a good example. Hey, Dan, that, that example that I talked about earlier that is, you know, the, that far. The only reason, like that was this is ten years ago, and I didn't really have a very good understanding of betting whatsoever. The only reason I knew it was a betting area was watching deer come out of it because I was fed up in other places and oh shoot, that you know, a buck came out of that. I, I might not be a real fast owner, but after I saw that a time or two, you know, it was clearly they were bed in there. So nowhere else. I got a follow-up question for Dan, um, kind of in regards to the farm bedding. Um, one of the things I struggle with in, like, my more open areas, I guess, is, you know, for instance, there's this one piece. Uh, well, there's a couple pieces I'm thinking about, but one in general is, is has very little, has a real tiny woodlot. And, you know, the big bucks don't really bed in there at all, but it's got some hedgerows coming off and uh, a little drainage ditch that comes off that has real tall kind of overgrown grass along it. And if you walk the whole piece, you walked every edge, you'll find, I don't know, maybe six buck beds. And, you know, I have my, my thoughts on which ones are the best because they're the most worn and, and just kind of make the most sense. But then there, you know, all these other ones that you might call satellite beds or they're less used. Do you, what, what do you do with those? Cause I find like more times than not, like, okay, I, I glass a buck or I get a picture of a buck on this property. I'm like, okay, you know, here's the wind. This is where I think he's going to be. And, you know, I'm sneaking into that bed, and it seems like more times than not, I get busted by a deer that's in one of these satellite beds that I kind of held, um, you know, at a lower value, but they're still getting used. I mean, do you systematically mm-hmm. kind of hunt those as well, or do you go right for the one that you? No, really I don't. Think I don't in? hunt the satellite bed. If I know it's satellite bedding and there's smaller bucks bedding in those spots, I. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't worry about them. I try not to spook them. If there's a way I can get in there without spooking them, I do it. But if I have to spook them, mm-hmm. I spook them. And one thing I do is I go in early. Um, I think if you spook uh, younger deer early in the day, 
the buck's less likely to get up and run off. Uh, if it's more towards the evening when he's more alert and getting up anyways, I think he's more likely to, to bust out of there. And uh, there's some credence to that in my observations, too. So I think that's working. Um, but mm-hmm. I've, I've kicked up plenty of deer where they've ran right through the bed and area, and you think, oh, damn it, you know. And I set up anyways, and, and I've had the big buck get up right where that buck had ran through and come to me. But I've also had times when mm-hmm. I've seen the buck run through there and the, and the big buck get up and run with him. So it's yeah. not something you want to do, um, but you might have to, you know, kick a deer or two to, to get in there. It's just part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get your opinion on this, too. So I've hunted both, and I've seen some uh, pretty significant dif- differences between the two, but really high deer density areas versus really low deer density areas. So my open area uh, that I hunt is, is really low. Uh, low deer density, um, not much cover for deer, very low numbers. You'll get skunked nine out of 10 times. But when you do see a, you know, a buck, it's typically a good one. But what I, what I see is, is much later movement. I'm talking about outside the rut here. So let's talk about like, you know, kind of early season through mid October, but I see much later movement, um, you know, with the lower deer density, um, kind of really, Okay, okay. That having a sense. difficult time. I thought you were saying the higher density, and I was like, oh, I'm seeing the opposite. So I'm seeing the same thing you're seeing. Okay, yeah. And the high deer density is what I'm seeing is much earlier movement, even by the mature mm-hmm. deer. But what is, makes it difficult is all this influx of other deer that are moving by you or past you or all around you. And then it's like you spook one of them, it's like a domino effect, you know? Um, yeah. And it just kind of sets. It, it, it just kind of sets them all off, and they all end up running back. So I find difficulty in both situations, but is that kind of what, what you see too? Yeah, I see that a lot too. Uh, I do see that, like, the, I think it's maybe the younger deer getting up and moving around to get the bigger bucks up, but the higher density, even outside of the rut, you seem to get that bigger buck movement earlier. Um, yeah. And for me, I think uh, if I think back to my uh, my younger days, I had a lot of problems with those deer coming in and spooking um, the, the early arrivals and spooking the buck on me. Uh, it doesn't happen as much anymore, and I think it's because I'm setting up better and wiser and uh, mm-hmm. taking into effect. You know, when I go in an area and I look to set up, I'm really easing in there, and most of the time I don't have a set tree. You know, there's a, <clears throat> there's some occasions where there's one tree you got to be in. We all know that. But there's a lot of places where there's several trees you could be in. And I'm basing it on the exact wind that day or, you know, or where I think the thermal's going to pull or, or that kind of thing and coming in without walking on the trails and stuff. And I get busted a lot less by those uh, other deer coming through. It still happens. And uh, sometimes it's just downright hard to get in without spooking the younger deer. But to, on the other hand, uh, even in the spots that are really difficult, I think uh, if you're after a certain animal, I think you've got to go and hunt those spots. Or that big buck will just mm-hmm. hole up in there and you'll never get them. You, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You have to you have to yeah. throw a stand at them. I heard you talk in, 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 in some review video, I think maybe it was that same video I mentioned earlier, you were talking about how, at least in this situation, you were mentioning how you don't like to do the systematic, you know, okay, hunt here today, then get a little bit closer the next time, a little bit closer the next time, a little bit closer the next time. You mentioned how you prefer to either observe from far back or just go in right for the kill. Um, is that is that right? And then can you can you elaborate on that a little bit? I think that's to relate to what we're talking about here a little bit. 
yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think if you kind of, um, uh, as people say, hunt your way in, um, if you, if you do that on a buck bed and you, you know, you hunt a spot and then you move up a hundred yards or something, it's like, to me, uh, part of my French, but slapping them on the ass and saying game on, <laughs> you know, you tell them you're hunting them. Um, I use the term hunt my way in. I probably should refrain from saying that, but on certain areas that are narrow, sometimes I hunt my way in, but I'm hunting a different bedding area every day. You know what I mean? To hunt one bedding area and to ease your way in, I think, uh, you're telling them you're hunting them. And one thing about a mature buck, if you want to kill him, uh, you want to catch him by uh, sheer and utter surprise. You don't want him to know he's being hunted or he'll become real nocturnal, real cagey and real hard to kill. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, Dan, I got a question for you um, related to difficulty of hunting. Um, do you find, um, which of these two situations do you find harder to hunt? Uh, small private parcels that might have a few more mature bucks running around or large public parcels with, you know, less good bucks, more hunting pressure, but a lot more room to maneuver. Well, well, obviously there's a lot of uh, catch-22s to that question, but I guess generally, (laughs) generally I would say the bigger property um, because I can hunt that animal down without the worry of kicking them off the property. Um, I've gotten permission on like, like those, like those suburban areas where you got five acres or something. It's like, really, you got one spot you can hunt. You know, to me, that's one hunt, you know? Um, but those bigger properties, um, you know, the, the property by me, I mean, it's, uh, the one right behind my house is, uh, like, I think it's close to 3000 acres of swamp and I can probably narrow it down to 12 spots that, a, uh, a giant buck will be in. If he's in the swamp, he'll be in one of those 12 spots. Um, there's a lot more bedding areas than that, but the mature bucks seem to take these core, you know, primary areas over. And, uh, you know, you you can kind of hunt down. Uh, if I got a spot, I can't hunt. I can't get in there and kill that deer. I mean, it's just too impossible. You can't get by quiet. You you know, he's got a a bulletproof setup. I'll just go in there, walk in there and kick him out and then hunt him in one of the other spots. Um, I'll walk through there two, three days in a row. So he doesn't want a bed there. Um, but you can't do that in the small properties. You really got to act, you know, light-footed and go in, you know, at the right time. I think it's really about timing if you've got a small property. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Dan. Um, so you've talked about, you know, obviously your, your focus and I guess all of our focus. We all would, you know, ideally want to kill that five- and six-year-old buck. But there's times you know, in places maybe where we lower our standards a little bit, at least I know I do. And you've talked about it. Um, mm-hmm. can you share some of those places or times where, you know, might be a situation where you lower your standards a little bit, um, and why you, why you might do that? Well, I, I do on public land a little bit, uh, especially if I, uh, if I don't have any leads on something really big, I mean, if I'm on something big, I'm not shooting nothing little. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I've killed two-year-old bucks out here that are 140 inches, and uh, that's a big buck to most people, you know? Um, and it's nice to me, but I see a lot of people, uh, I mean, I'm changing your question a little here, but I see a lot of people, uh, you, you know, they, they want to kill a deer, 
they want to be a big buck hunter, but they want to kill a deer. So they get into these bad habits of hunting deer. And for me, no matter what your, what your standard is, you've got to target mature bucks in order to kill mature bucks. I mean, you can target little bucks and you'll kill little bucks, but you're going to kill them big bucks, targeting little bucks. You'd have to get lucky. But you can hunt big bucks and still get, if I little, I don't mean little, but I mean, you know, like a nice two-year-old or three-year-old. You can get those by, you know, hunting those, but you're not going to kill mature bucks unless you hunt mature bucks. Just a different animal. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah, and that that's a good that's a good question, Dan. Um, say you got this younger, newer hunter who wants to do that, but they don't have necessarily many deer under their belt at all. At what point is there any advice you can give them? How do they know when they're ready to you know go after a big buck versus? I mean, yeah, it's all well and good to hold out for a big buck, but if they're eating tag soup every year and not getting any experience making the kill, which we all know is really important. Um, you know, I would never tell somebody how to hunt or what to do or how they should be, but I would recommend that uh, young hunters that want to be good buck hunters don't pass your biggest buck. <laughs> you, yeah. you see that a little bit, you know, where guys will let a buck go because they think they got to do better because their friends are doing better or something. If it's your biggest buck, I'd never, I'd never recommend somebody let that go. You got to get some killing under your belt in order to be a good hunter. And I've noticed that a lot of the newer generations starting out nowadays, uh, um, they're trying to hold out for big bucks and they're talking like they're big buck hunters before they're killing anything. And I think they're missing out on a lot of the the hunting. I mean, all, all the guys I know that are great hunters, and uh, you you can uh, tell me if I'm wrong with uh, you guys, Joe and Andy. But all the guys I know that are, are great hunters like us, uh, and I don't know where you started, but you probably started like I did, killing a lot of deer. Uh, that's oh, what yeah. made us who we are. And then we started slowly adapting into the big bucks. And I think these younger people want to start out right away killing big bucks. And you've got to learn how to kill animals and what to do when a deer walks by and how to act and when to pull a bull and, and all that stuff that you really can't learn reading about or hearing about. You have to go do and the time to learn how to kill a big buck is not when you stand underneath your stand. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, my first buck was a nubber, and then I shot a four-core, you know, and then I shot a couple more little bucks, and then I shot four or five two-year-olds, and, you know, it was a while yep. before I, you know, and, and the you know, I'm fortunate to live in a state, you know, in Iowa that, you know, most hunters dream about, and the most... The vast majority, I don't know, the first dozen big bucks that I saw, I didn't have a chance in hell killing them. You know, that was a wreck. So. <laughs> All right, we need to take another quick break here, this time to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. And today, I want to plug another one of their Land Beat YouTube videos that I think many of you are going to find helpful. This one's similar to the last video I mentioned a couple weeks ago which features again my friend Ben Harshine discussing habitat and terrain funnels. And again, here he uses maps and drone footage and an on-the-ground tour to help you see exactly what these pinch points look like. So he just describes a different couple examples in this video which help out in addition to what he shared in the last one. This episode is titled Identifying Funnels on the Map, Using Maps to Scout and Find Great Stand Locations. Definitely recommend checking this one out. It's a great visualization to help you understand how to identify these types of locations that can be so dynamite during the rut. 
And just to reiterate, you can find these on the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel within their Land Beat video series. And if you want to learn more about Whitetail Properties in general, you can visit whitetailproperties.com. Speaking, <laughs> speaking, of, uh, speaking of newer hunters um, and some of the mistakes or some of the things we're seeing them do, what about this, Dan? I imagine you've seen a lot of people come through the Hunting Beast Forum and read about what you guys are doing and start trying it themselves, and they're sharing their experiences on the forum, talking about their hunts year after year. When you read about all the other guys that are trying to hunt this kind of quote-unquote beast style, what's the what's the biggest mistake, or what do you still see these people doing wrong um, time after time? I think they think it's too easy. I think they think they're going to go out there, learn this in, in a season, and, and start killing huge bucks instantly, like they're reading a manual on how to do it. Um, I, I think usually if I watch the readers uh, or watch the guys that come onto the beast, you see probably 50%, maybe more than that, maybe 75% of them stick around for about a year, and then you don't hear from them again. Yeah. The ones that, that stick around, you don't really see that success until they've been doing it about three years. And you always see a cocky, arrogant attitude that they're going to kill these bucks, that they, they found these great bedding areas, and they're going to go out and do it that first year. And they got to get slapped in the face and, and learn that it takes a little more than finding one or two good bedding areas to do it. And they got to get humbled and then come back up, rise up, and try hard and not give up. And I, I see these guys, um, if they can withstand that first two, three years, they get to be great hunters after that. What do you guys think? You guys are watching the guys in the beast. Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to agree. It's a, uh, um, you know, anytime, anytime you're killing deer, like by focusing on their beds and, and zeroing down on your on their bedding area, you like you mentioned in in some of your earlier DVDs, like you got to put in so much time scouting and find so many of the the type of beds and the types of uh, setups and situations that you're looking for that you're trying to fill a whole season with. Um, so like, you know, you can't, you can't go and and scout and find four beds and, you know, think you're going to knock down a couple of big ones next year. I mean, you literally, I think you, you've, you, you mentioned that you have more beds that you've scouted, you know, that you could probably hunt in the rest of your life, but you know, it's, it takes a lot of work to kind of build up that, that library of setups and, and places where you can kind of fall back on as you, you know, like you say, you, you hunt and you, you don't see anything, you know, you hunt, you know, maybe a seven or eight days straight without seeing a single deer, but you also, you always have that next spot to kind of fall back on due to your scouting and the amount of time and work you put in. So it's not for the faint of heart and it's not for the type of person that, uh, you know, is is not ready to kind of commit, um, commit to it. You know, I think, I think guys that maybe can't put in as much time can still find some value, um, in the, in that type of hunting because, you know, they might have some, some really, you know, promising setups and bedding areas and areas that they hunt that they could focus on. But if you're going to be a consistent hunter, focusing on buck bedding, it, it really takes a lot of commitment and uh, a lot of work in that off season, really finding high volume, high numbers of these, at least for me, it does because I, you know, I tend to, <laughs> I screw up a lot with it for sure. But, you know, you keep, 
you keep at it, you keep fine tuning your setup and your knowledge base. You just get a little bit better at it each time, and you kind of you kind of figure out what you can get away with. And, you know, a little I get a little closer than this, or I, you know, that's a little too. You know, I need to back off a little. All those things come with experience, and it takes time. Yeah, I think Dan, what you what you described as far as an average timeline, and and everybody's different, and every, how much time you're spending on it is different too. But you know, three to five years, yeah, it's a three to five year investment before you think before you there's any chance you think you're you're kind of you know you know what you're doing, I guess, in in terms of target hunting. And by you know, I don't. There's lots of times all of us can't figure it out. You know that. You know, there's it's a lot to too where um, maybe you guys can relate with me, but I can go out there and look at something, and I don't know how to put it in words, but I can look at it and say this is going to be good, or this is yeah. going to suck. But it's really hard to teach that to people how to look at something like that. That three or five years of investment—that's what it takes. You know, like like you get the question, how do you know where to set up? You know, how do you answer that question? You know, you can't. Right. You can't. You know, you can give them some general rules, but like, you know, some place, somewhere, you know, you might not be able to get within a hundred yards of a bed, and another place, you might be able to get forty yards from it. You know. So. Right. Yeah. It all. It all comes back to like, in my opinion, you know, like Dan, you said you, you have trouble putting those situations into words. It's because like all of your experiences, you know, whether we even realize it or not, it's it's always like fine tuning our judgment. Right. So then we, we get into these situations where like, okay, you know, you're, you're almost subconsciously, you, you know, I've been through this before. I've been through this situation and, and this worked and this didn't, and this was too much and this was just enough. And you're, you're always fine tuning your judgment. And over time with a lot of experience, you just start making the right call more often, you know, just almost like, um, you know, without even really a whole lot of thought, you just feel it, you know, you feel it because you've been there before and, and you've made the mistakes. Great. And I, and I would say that time, you know, yeah, if someone doesn't have time, they don't have time, but don't, I feel bad for the people that just kind of, Oh, it takes that much time and they lose interest and they wander off. Cause to me, that's the fun part, you know, it's the mm-hmm. journey, yeah. you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm wired a little different, but that's that's what I love is you know figuring stuff out. And yeah, you're gonna screw up. You're gonna start screwing out, screwing up 99.9 percent of the time, and then you're only gonna screw up 99 percent of the time. You know, um, and yeah. uh, it's fun. You know, um, I think a, a big part of it too is uh, uh, blending what they're doing with what we're doing, and not jumping in 100 percent. Because I mean, if you're already killing some deer. And then they jump in full boat and they, they see a decline. And I think that's what pushes a lot of people away from it. But if you just start learning the, how they bed and start re- putting that into the style you're hunting and slowly go into it, I think you'll have more success. It'll just take longer to get full boat to where we're at. Oh, we talked about, uh, like, okay, beginners, most common mistakes. What's what's Dan Infault's most common mistakes? And, like, what, in your opinion, I know you're – you kind of said, you know, maybe your skill level has kind of tapered off the last few years because, you know, maybe the drive isn't quite there. But what would take Dan Infault to the next level? What do you, what, what could you improve on? I think, um, you know, I'm always uh, analyzing uh, my hunts and uh, my seasons and stuff. Um, that's just a natural part of me. 
And my analyzation of this last season was I didn't shoot enough, I didn't practice enough, and uh, I blew a lot of opportunities. I think i got to focus on my practice a little more. I think I need to focus on scouting a little more for myself instead of others if I want to be more successful. I think I, uh, mm. I don't put the time in that I used to, either shooting or scouting. I think last year I had uh, four or five opportunities, and I blew every one of them. Do you have like a specific game plan as far as how to address that? Is it just quantity of practice, or do you need to? Are you changing anything else as far as? I am changing something up this year. Um, um, I'm, I'm finding that my judgment is getting worse, um, where I'm not judging my shot distance. I used to just use one pin in the rangefinder or anything, and I'm going to go with a um, an adjustable pin this year in a uh, rangefinder for the first time. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then what about scouting? You mentioned maybe you need to scout some more, and we were ta- alluding to this a little bit earlier, just about how much work it takes to find enough places to hunt in this kind of way because you're going from bedding area to bedding area, and you might blow it up. Um, I think we hear that a lot, but sometimes newer people don't really know what that actual, you know, exactly how much that is. So what's, like, the ballpark number that maybe you typically go into a season with, Dan? Are you, do you have, like, 40 beds do you have 200 beds i mean what what should a new guy be thinking you know, about? i have i have no idea count wise i mean there's hundreds and thousands of my guess i would i would blow it way out of the park but uh um it's not really about how many bedding areas i know i already got that stuff down me personally when i'm scouting right now i'm looking for bucks i want to because i'm in a low buck density area so i want to know where those mature bucks are so i know where to go after certain animals so that's the scouting I need to personally uh, uh, key in on. But for other people, I think you need to find as many buck bedding areas as you can and have setups on them. And then you, know, you need to monitor those areas and see when there's a buck in the area to go in to hunt. I mean, when rubble lines open up, when you when you uh, see one out of a window that you know the area, okay, if I'm seeing a buck here, you know, and it's a month uh, season and I'm seeing him in a field just before dark, where's he coming from? And uh, that kind of stuff. And you already know the area, already have it scouted. Um, for a guy that just has, you know, 10 buck bedding areas scouted and doesn't know a lot about them, that, it gets pretty tough. And I think a younger guy or a newer guy um, should probably concentrate on one property and learn all the bedding in that one property first because it's easier to hunt on a property than it is to hunt one spot on each property because there's a good odds of bucks in some other spot. But if there's a buck on that property and you hunt that property down, you're, you're more likely to kill them. Hmm. Well, that, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Dan. That was something I had been meaning to ask you was if you recommend, how you recommended somebody start, you know, start and poke, learn something really well or spread yourself out. You, you answered that, so thanks. Say, <laughs> so Dan, you talked about monitoring these different bedding years then once you find them. One of the ways that I think some people think about monitoring a bedding area or a region of a property is with trail cameras. But I heard you talk about l- last year at least how trail cameras maybe misled you a little bit in that way. Um, is that something that you see happen more often? Do, do trail cameras end up hurting you more than they help you in some cases, or or is there a certain way we should be thinking about them to make sure they don't? Well, cameras can be your best friend or your worst enemy. Um, you find people that get addicted to them things and are they're putting them in places they shouldn't and they're checking them all the time. Um, you know, or they're, or they got them in a spot where they really couldn't kill something anyways. And then they're, every time they see something on there, they change their whole game plan towards it. I think the best thing you can do with a trail camera is uh, if you got a bedding area or a 
rub line that comes out of a bedding area and it's a hundred yards back or something or a couple hundred yards back and we would have a camera there um but i really wouldn't recommend having them where you hunt unless it's a email type that email you the picture and even then i put it there way in advance yeah just keeping but, that uh, pressure low yeah you gotta you gotta you got to get the intel and, and, and use that intel for something. I think a lot of the ways I like to use trail cameras is to put them on a food source um, a ways away from bedding where it has no impact on the bedding at all. And just know that there's a big buck in that area, in that woods. And then I know the bedding. I can go after them. But I think a lot of the younger people are, or newer people to this, uh, to this way of hunting uh, have to build their confidence up, and they have to believe that there's a buck in that bedding area, and that's why they put those cameras so close. But I think that's hurting them. Uh, I don't think those deer get to be, you know, four years old or older on pressured land without knowing that game. When somebody walks someplace, they know I don't go there no more in daylight. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Andy, Andy, what were you going to say there before I interrupted you? Oh, I was going to ask Dan what what type of terrain or habitat do you find the most difficult for you to hunt? Um, hill country, probably. Um, mm-hmm. you get, uh, you, you have a hard time getting close enough. You know, you get below, you get mm-hmm. the thermal rise and you get above, you get the wind blowing at them. So you got to find that little niche to get around them. And uh, it's not that I, I find it really difficult to hunt. It's just, it's, it's a struggle, you know, and kind of like, uh, it's a little more challenging to me. Sometimes that's funner, <laughs> but it is a little more challenging to get within that window of, of killing deer. Um, all the rest of the terrains, I think that, uh, I get closer. Is there a certain type of Hills? Uh, we, we've talked a little bit about this in other places, uh, certain type of Hills that you find the most difficult, you know, they, they range from, you know, you have big, great, big, steep bluffs and then gentle rolling Hills. Um, yeah, for sure. Problem? The rolling Hills are much harder. The rolling hills are much harder, uh, and, and especially for scouting, just finding the, the bedding areas in those rolling hills is tough because um, in the steep bluffs, they're right at the point where that thermal wind meet and they're worn in. You know, you can see them really well, but in those rolling hills, um, they're constantly shifting their bed, so it's hard to tell, you know, if deer have been bedding there a lot, you know. That's what I've seen too. In the steepest hills, that's where I find the heaviest, most you know, um, defined beds. Because it's flat out, there's less options. I think you know. Yep. Another bedding question that I that I've wanted to get a little bit more from you on, Dan, is just how bedding might change throughout the year. I've heard you talk a little bit about how it transitions from early season to late season in different types of terrain. But can you, can you talk about that a little bit, how that might change in like a hill country situation versus a swamp or farm country type situation? Uh, you know, uh, hill country, I see them bedding on those, uh, those leeward ridges all year. Um, farms and swamps, I see, see a little different though. Um, like right now, um, going out wandering around uh, farms and uh, scouting and glassing and stuff. I'm seeing a lot of them big bucks are bedding up in uh, the open fields, um, in the in the grass cover, um, right out in places where they normally don't. And I think it's to get away from the mosquitoes. I don't think they want to be down in that water area, but they seem to be a long ways away from the water right now, um, up on the higher stuff. But uh, once 
season comes, they just start moving right back into that stuff, and I'm hitting them right in the same place as I always do. But then uh, early season, I'm finding them around the acorns, you know, and, and vice versa. You're starting to follow the, the routine of the um, food sources or whatever they're looking for for that time of the year. And one thing I noticed, though, um, that you're going to see distinct patterns. So if you hunt a woodlot, like like uh, I think it was Joe was saying earlier, if you hunt one woodlot and learn it well, you'll start to see that when you've seen a big buck in a certain area, that exact time, date, time frame, right down to the week, is when you should be hunting that area again the next year. It's not a coincidence. I don't think those big bucks do anything on coincidence. So there's like food patterns and timing patterns they move through an area. Do you see that change as a buck gets older at all, though? If you ever have a buck that you've seen maybe a couple of years in a row, do you see that, um, you know, some people talk about how these home ranges tend to get tighter and tighter and tighter as these bucks get older mm-hmm. and older? Anything anything else like well, that that you see? What saying? I can say about uh, older bucks is, is this, is that, um, and this would probably strike a few people wrong, but, but it's really what I've, I've observed and I believe. I think older bucks are easier to hunt. And the reason being is they get locked into those primary bedding areas, just hole up there and stay there. And they're hard to kick out. You kick them out, they come right back in. Where those younger bucks seem to, you kick them out, they move to another spot. Um, but those older bucks seem to really find an area where hardly anybody goes and they just stay there. And they're harder to push out of that area. Um, and they'll move further for food. You know, they'll, during the night they'll go to a food source or whatever. And is that? Do you think that's just exactly because they they found something that works for them and has kept them alive for so long, and, and now they're they're set in that way? Like this has worked for me for five years. Why change yeah, it now? You, you know, it's hard for it's hard for me to tell you what the buck's thinking, but uh, I don't know if it's through experiences. I don't you know I don't know what causes it, but I see that in in not only on on pressured private. I see it on uh, on the managed stuff I I've hunted and uh, helped people with too. Yeah. I see the same thing. Yeah. Well, what's, uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, I look up to Joe and Andy a lot. I'm, I'm curious to, if they've seen that same type of uh, behavior. Yeah, I, I have definitely. And I, like, you know, living where I do, I am very fortunate to hunt some older deer. And once that buck hits five, six years old, they become very, very patternable. Now, those patterns aren't easy by any means. But if you're, you know, on your game, once you find them, I've, I've come into, I've run into a lot of bucks where they are, they make their home in a, a woodlot or one small drainage, and they're in 40 or 80 acres, it seems like 90% of the time. Um, and, if you, and if you think about it now, most of your hunters are on a pattern of rotating through stands, and they never move off that pattern. Yeah. They don't get that, you know. They don't go mobile, and you've got to go mobile and go find that deer's pattern in order to kill them. Yeah, and it's those, those areas that they find. They are never hunted. You know, they're they're there right. for a reason. They're you know they they seek out these areas because for whatever reason people aren't you hunting it. You know, we've got edges or whatever, but where they're actually budding, nobody ever goes. But it's a really small area when you find it. So. You know, the proverbial overlooked spot. Yep. What about you, Andy? Yeah, yeah, I have I have seen that too. In fact, the the buck uh, that buck I killed last year um, that's a, a a perfect explanation um, of of how I killed that deer. You know, he just I it took me 
three years to get him, but um, it just really kept fine-tuning. Um, and he was seen um, he was seen in some areas that were kind of quite a ways away from where I had killed him, and he had been shot at a few times by some different guys around the area. And uh, he really ended up uh, just zeroing into this little tiny corner along this river corridor. And, uh, you know, he's, he spent, you know, as far as I could tell, um, you know, he was spending the majority of his time there. And uh, I was getting a couple pictures um, of him, and he was always kind of coming and going, always coming that coming from that direction, going back. And uh, it really, because I, because I, come to know that buck really well it became a pretty straightforward setup on how to get him i just had to time it right and you know on a day where he was moving in daylight and that sort of thing so yeah. and i would point out even though they're in a small area it does not mean they're visible they're 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 often just about invisible you know they're not walking in front of where you normally put your tree if you put a trail camera on a certain tree every single year and check it you know regularly they, they may be in the area and they just know not to walk in front of your camera, you know, or, you know, they're not walking by your stand, but they might be, you know, you might be regularly hunting the stand and that buck might be bedding 200 yards away and he knows you're there, he knows you're regularly there and he just never will show himself. So just because you don't see him, he doesn't mean he's not there. So. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're, you know, hunting normal ways, you know, hunting the same old stands and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. What else do you got, Joe? Uh, any other questions uh, top of mind for you? Um, w- one question I got for you, Dan, is, you know, if, if you could give yourself a piece of advice, uh, you know, from, th- you know, if you could give yourself a piece of advice 30 years ago, what would it be in terms of just hunting in general? Like maybe a how-to or a how-not-to uh you know, what What would have helped you the most if you could tell yourself a 30-year younger version of yourself something? Jeez. So. Oh, uh, I know there will be a lot. Big one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It would probably be something to do with family, uh, you, you know, and, and how I spend my time. I was, uh, as we alluded to earlier, I was uh, pretty obsessed with hunting back then. So basically, you know, that balance your time a little bit more yeah worry a little bit more about work about family about my kids unlike you guys i had kids early i think uh, i think the biggest one for me was i i put a lot of pressure on my middle son who um who was the only one that really liked hunting and i think i pressured him right out of liking it you know um to me um i like the work in hunting you know the to, to hike back uh, three miles in a swamp with a stand on and set up. Um, but I really never thought about him not liking that part of it, and I think I pushed him a little too hard. Um, you know, uh, I think I would rather have made it more fun for him. You know, I think back to my younger days, uh, uh, or all my days for that matter, the hunts I remember the most aren't those giant bucks I killed. The ones that are that that I remember the most are my first buck, the first deer with a bow, the times chasing those deer around, just having fun, where it was just trying to kill a deer. Um, and I, I think uh, you know my son missed that a little bit. Uh, he's got uh, three bucks in his life, and I think the smallest one scores about one ten or one twenty. 
he's never shot a doe. Um, so I, th- I think I kind of pushed him into missing some of that, you know, and, and now I don't hunt. Yeah, that's that's interesting to hear. It's something I've been thinking about a lot about myself too with um with my first son being born, he's just six months old now and so I'm I'm thinking a lot about how do you go about introducing a child to the outdoors and hunting and how do you, you know, to your point, Dan, I could see myself doing the same thing. I'm so excited about it, I'm so passionate about it, I'm so hardcore about it, that how do I temper that down to to work, you know, to still have fun for him and to, to not overwhelm him. Um that seems right. like something could easily happen. Right, you gotta remember he's not you. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted Jamie to be me. You know, I wanted him to be like me and be who I was. And you know, I don't think that's realistic. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people will probably criticize me for talking about that. But, it's you know, it's true. And I think it'll probably help somebody else by saying it. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I thought about that as well with my kids. Is, you know, how to, how to bring them into something that I'm so passionate about. But I do worry about burning them out. So. Yeah. Yeah. Now I kind of want to flip that a little bit, Dan. Now, so you being so hardcore about it, you being so obsessed with things, maybe ended up being a detriment when it came to introducing hunting to your to your family, to your son. Um, but now I want to talk about the the intangible things about you that have made you so so successful. What if you could put your finger on any trait or habit or routine or, or some intangible thing about what you do or who you are, is there anything you can point to on that level that do you think has led to your success? Has it just been that hardcore nature or is there something else? I'll tell you, the, the, this is going to sound horrible, but it's true. The The number one thing with me is, is that uh, cocky, arrogant belief that I'm going to kill a buck. It's mental power. You have to believe in yourself. If you really believe you're going to do it, um, you'll go out and you'll do the job. You'll do the work. You'll do the, you know, you'll push yourself that far. Um, and I think a lot of people that fail, it's it's because of their mind. I don't think it's because they necessarily know that much less. I think the difference between maybe um, me and Andy and, and Joe and some of the newer guys on the site isn't really the knowledge, because I mean, it's all pretty much out there. I think a lot of it's the experience and the, the, the belief in ourselves. I think uh, I go out there just believing that I'm going to do it. I think every time I go into woods, I believe I'm going to kill that deer I'm after. Uh, you know, I believe that's the day I'm going to kill him. And when I don't, I get up the next morning and go out there just as happy, still believing I'm going to kill that deer that day. Do you think that is just is that just a personality trait, or is that actually because you've put in so much time and effort and work and scouting, you have so much experience that you realistically do have that confidence because of all that skills that you have already, or is it both? Yeah, I, I don't think you can buy that experience, and, and I don't think you can teach that experience. I think it's I think it's by putting a you know pile of bucks on the wall that you you just start to believe that hey this works you know I'm going to do it and and I believe in my setups. I believe in my scouting. And I think it's going to work every time I go out there. I, I really believe that this is the spot that buck's going to be better at, and this is where he's going to come out. And if I didn't have that belief, I probably wouldn't get up and go out there. And I think that's why a lot of other people fail. I think it's why they leave early, why they lack in confidence. And the only way you can get that is to go out there and kill some bucks and, and build that confidence up. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy too. You know, you kind of alluded to it. If you don't have confidence in your setup or 
your strategy when you're sitting out there. If you're not confident, you're maybe not paying as much attention or you're not willing to stay till the very last minute or you're not willing to get out there two hours before dark because, you, eh, well, it's probably not going to work out anyway. So lots of times just that confidence will push you or will allow you to do the things you know you need to do. Um, you know, it ain't just that, too. I mean, you're on stand. I'm listening. I'm, I'm watching. I'm hearing things in the distance. I'm, I'm looking for movement and stuff. But I think other people, you know, are sitting there daydreaming. Things are, are going on that they're not even noticing. And and I, I know that's little, but I think the differences between a great hunter and a, an okay hunter is little things. You know, it's a, and a, a lot of those little things add up, and that's what makes you successful. Yeah. Yeah, your mindset's huge. You know, when you're when you're thinking about um, you know what might be going wrong, um, it's you just about guarantee you're going to screw it up. I've I've been in situations where, you know, uh, you know, I have a buck coming in and earlier in my career, and I was, you know, oh, there's no way I can screw this up. You know, I don't know. If you have that mindset, then you're going to screw it up. So I've <laughs> got the stories to prove it. So, <laughs> but you know, when it comes in. When you see a deer and you think, I'm going to kill that deer, you're going to kill it. Is there, yeah. is there anything, Joe, that you could point to? If I were to take that question I just gave to Dan and, and point that back to you, do you have any, any other intangible quality or routine or habit or, or mindset other than what we just talked about that has that's helped you? Yeah, I, and I think, you know, I'm kind of a student of observing people's personalities, so I think this fits. Andy and Dan as well um, were persistent and that is I don't know if you want to say it's learned or it comes natural I, that's debatable I guess uh, but uh, you gotta be persistent and you gotta have, you know that, that's how we can go out there again and again and fail and keep going and keep believing in it is you're persistent and you don't get burned out in a way of you know that negative self-talk that really takes you down. You just, you just, you know. That's a really good point. You know, I've never seen somebody that's been successful beast hunting that's lazy. You've got to have a strong work ethic. I mean, you've got to like the work, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you yeah. agree? Yes, exactly. You got to love the work. That's 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 how you sum it up. You got to love the work. You got to love sweating your butt off and out, you know, a mile in, mile out, two miles in, two miles out. You got to want to, you got to want to drag that buck out two miles, you know, everybody, you know, when somebody asks, oh, you know, isn't that too far? Well, yeah, that's probably just not for you then if you're worried about how far the drag is going to be, you know. Right. You hear all those people uh, (laughs) say, well, I'd, I'd never shoot a buck in that spot because of how far of a drag that is, or I wouldn't even hunt there because of that. You know, I can't I speak for you guys, that. but I've never, ever thought about how I'm going to get a deer out until it's dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. What about you, Andy? What's your intangible that you would add? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'd, I'd go right along with what both Danny and Joe said. I think, you know, I'm just, ex- I'm extremely thorough, like, with my scouting. So I think I, I mentioned this before, but, like, you know, and I know Joe does this, but I, I'm I'm thorough enough in my scouting where it, it, it would almost have to be some, you know, really, really bad luck, extremely bad luck for me to not at least have some success. So I don't like leaving a lot of things to chance. 
Um, so it, I love the preparation. I love the scouting, even you know, even more than the hunt in a lot of time, a lot of ways. So I'm just extremely thorough with with all of that, just to kind of put. Yeah, I think that just kind of puts all the odds in my favor, at least a, enough of the odds in my favor. Um, but then I have like this, I don't know, I have this like constant drive to improve, like not to be the best hunter. I don't care about that, but I have to be, I, I always have to be improving with the things that I'm passionate about. And I don't know why that is, but like being stagnant in anything that I'm really passionate about it, like it almost makes me ill. I get anxiety about it. It's weird. Yeah. But I just, I constantly have to be improving about, you know, with the things that I'm passionate about. There's only about, you know, a couple of, a couple of things. So that, that's why those tend to get, you know, the majority of my time. Yeah. Yeah. If I feel uncertain about something, it drives me nuts. I hate that feeling. (laughs) And then I think that, you know, you know, you you guys sounds like you guys know what I mean. You know, like if I'm not sure of it drives me nuts and I'm going to keep going back, keep going back, keep figuring, trying to figure it out. It's funny how similar we are. The three of us. Mm -hmm. And you hear all the different people I talked to over the years through the podcast, there are definitely these, all these intangibles you just mentioned. They're the same things that come up for almost every single person. And these, all these different people, they might hunt in totally different ways. Some guys don't hunt at all like you, Dan, or you, Andy, or Joe, but they still have these core kind of, Piece, parts of like who they are that seems to be consistent across all you guys and, and many of the other best hunters out there. So it's it's almost like if you have these core things, if you're persistent, if you're willing to, to care about the little things, if you're willing to, to put in an unbelievable amount of time and effort and energy and, and keep that positive attitude, if you can do those things, you'll eventually find the style of hunting that works for you. Um, but those things are the keys. That seems to be very consistent. Yeah, yeah that's, that's one of the reasons why I... I've learned, and maybe I'll change as I gain maturity as a hunter, but I try to not go after one particular buck because it just consumes me to the point that I, I'll wake up at 2 a.m. and stare at the ceiling for three hours thinking about that darn deer, you know. <laughs> um, so I try not to. I really, you know, I, I try to keep that under control. So And everybody's different, you know, but uh, it's just a quirk. Yeah. Well, Joe or Andy, do either of you guys have any other uh, any other big ones we want to run by Dan? Uh, no, I don't have any more questions for Dan, but I, I do want to say something to him. I don't know. Are we are we ending this thing? Yeah, yeah. We, I think maybe maybe kind of conclude it here. I've got I've got kind of one more question, but but yeah, if you want to conclude it with some thoughts, Andy, that'd be good. Well, it's more of a, a I guess a thank you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you to Dan. Because uh, you know he's someone that I look up to. I never had a, I never had a mentor. You know, like nobody got me into hunting. I actually started archery, and then uh, I was you know decent at archery, and people were like, "Oh, you should hunt." And that's kind of how I started hunting. Um, so, you know, the, the the people that were mentors, you know, I, I learned a lot with trial and error. But Dan was certainly like one of my mentors. Um, for sure. I've learned a ton from him. You know, he's never, I respect him a ton. He's never really sought out notoriety, push products. In fact, he's tried to steer, you know, the guys at the hunting beast away from him, you know, and he's super generous with his time and his information for, I mean, how many years, how many years has he been doing this? It's, 
you know, it's amazing. So he just has like a, a natural nonsense way of teaching and explaining things, something that I think doesn't come so natural to me. Like for him, he's just really easy to listen to and uh, just comes off real naturally. And I think he'll, you know, I really think he he's going to go down as one of the great real world hunters. And I know that's not a big deal to him, but you know, because of the, the commitment, um, you know, the longevity and the willingness to share and teach. So, you know, I just, I'm really thankful. And like on behalf of everyone listening and the guys at the hunting beast, I just want to say thank you. I, I completely agree. And you're a role model. I will flat out say that, you know, you have taught me a lot in how to conduct myself, I feel like. And I think that applies to a lot of them. So. Well, absolutely. Yep. You know, I, I kind of look up to you guys too. I think you guys are, uh, some of the top guys on the site. I mean, uh, you two talk. I always listen. So, so then, I'll wrap it up. I'll wrap it up with this, Dan. Um, we've asked you a lot of questions. You get thousands of questions on the beast. You get all sorts of questions from other people on all these different podcasts and people interviewing you for all these different things. Is there any question that you haven't been asked yet that you wish you had? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not that I can think of. Uh, I've had people ask me the craziest questions, like what my favorite ice cream is, what car I drive. I mean, <laughs> it gets pretty nuts sometimes. There's nothing that you've <laughs> but, really wanted to talk about that no one ever and never ends up diving into, huh? Uh, no, I do. I do feel like uh, most podcasts. Um, I mean, it, it's guys that don't beast hunt, so they don't ask the right questions, and it's just the same stuff over and over again. I really like the format you had on this one. This was really cool. It was, it was a good idea you had. Um, I think we got some good stuff out there. Yeah. I think people like this. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely have enjoyed it, too. What's your favorite venison <laughs> recipe? My favorite venison recipe? Um, yeah. A couple sticks of butter and uh, some chopped up uh, venison uh, in uh, a lot of vegetables. Stir fried. Yes. I think you got that on YouTube. I think I remember that yeah. one. Yeah. So. <laughs> that sounds That's, pretty good. If it's not buttery enough, just keep adding butter and salt. Lots of salt. <laughs> so, Dan, um, I guess I'll just ask you then, what What do you want to send people to? What should people that are listening to this that have, you know, if somehow they haven't heard out, heard about you or the hunting beast, what do you want them to go do next? Do you want them to just check out the forum? Do you want to send them to your DVDs? Um, where can they find all that kind of stuff? You know, um... Uh, my hunting forum is probably a great place to go. There's a lot of free uh, tactical discussion on there, and that's thehuntingbeast.com. I've got uh, a great YouTube channel. I mean, you got to filter through some stuff because I love to put clips up there of chasing down possums and catching them, but there's still some really good uh, uh, tactical deer videos in there that are really pretty cool. But you got to dig around for them. And then we got a Facebook page. Um, I've got some really good uh, tactical DVDs. But you don't have to buy those. You can get that, you know, if you do the research, everything's online free. Um, just come on to the site. we got a site that's uh, hassle-free. Um, we don't allow any bullying or anything. We get rid of people as soon as they start. So it's uh, real easy going where anybody can talk, anybody can ask any questions they want. Awesome. Well, I would just echo everything that Joe and Andy said. You know, over the years, I've I've followed your stuff for a long time now, too, and it's been tremendously helpful and hearing from our listeners they'd they'd all agree too i think a lot of people can point to you being a tremendous resource so uh thank you for all that work dan and thanks for joining us again here on the podcast appreciate it thanks for having me on 
And that will do it for us today. So thank you all for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this one as much as we enjoyed putting it together. To wrap it up, just want to remind you that if you haven't left a rating or review on iTunes, that's a huge help. Also want to make sure you're following along with what we've got going on with Wired to Hunt over on our Facebook page, the Instagram account, Twitter, and the YouTube videos. I'm putting out new videos every week right around now. Just recently, we've started a series of videos, including Andy, again, talking about target panic and some ways to, to, to beat target panic, which is something we talked through on a podcast a handful of weeks ago with him when we were answering listener questions. So check that one out. And of course, most importantly, thank you all so much for listening. I appreciate you sharing your time with us here. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.